All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 353. Jason Lingren is with me, and we have a guest who will use a pseudonym, Dr. C. Maybe he can help you see a few things about pharmacy products. I guess I'll reiterate real quick before we jump in things that we've covered before. Words have meaning. Words are used with intent. This is a big deal in our world, and it's a thing that most English-speaking nations don't really pay a lot of attention to, particularly if the words relate to languages that they don't speak. So once again, we will take the word pharmacy, point out to you that if you do a study and etymology your way back to where it comes from, you'll end up in the Greek with a word called pharmakos. That word means scapegoat. If we further take apart what we're handed every day and what we see every day in our lives, we will realize that these pharmacy drugs are represented by an RX symbol. For time immemorial, as far as I know, that symbol was used in astrology to mean retrograde, going backwards. These are important things to comprehend. But what we're going to do here is we're going to go at all these things that most of us probably have no idea are true about the pills that are so readily pushed. And I will further state, we have had enough doctors on that have said to us, there is almost no example of a pharmacy drug that ever cured anything. They're almost all designed to go after the symptoms. And we've had enough doctors on to know what symptoms are. Symptoms are the body's warning flag saying, hey man, there's something wrong. And that is what is being suppressed or masked or reduced, however you want to look at it, when you're taking these chemical creations. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. And good morning. And you know, it's almost like another example that the English language itself could be considered part of the control mechanism. Almost like a spell unto itself because of the way we're taught to use it. And I think it goes without saying that the way that we're taught to use language and think about it really is designed to help us get along in a system the system that has been laid forth that if the controllers of this world had their way, we'd all participate in that system and line up like little sheep and do what we're supposed to do. Um, language goes a lot further and anyone, any day of the week can do a couple things. Never forget that words have meaning. Never forget that color has a meaning that is beyond provable. It is not questionable what color does. Color has a vibratory rate. Therefore, it has a frequency. Therefore, it is representing a fact about the creation. For a thing to be red or a thing to be blue is a fact about the creation. Never forget these things. But to get back to where I was going, etymology. When you start to look up what a word means, you've got to use the etymology. There are very good sources online. The dictionaries, not so much. The dictionaries, I would recommend the oldest ones you can get are valuable. Don't lose those big old honking dictionaries. Most of them are related to Oxford on the, on the cover in some way, uh, but they're typically over a thousand pages. They're very thick. Um, maybe five inches thick or something like that. And you want to go older is better. You want to get before the modern edit. So if you can get one from the fifties or the forties or the thirties, hold on to those. They are valuable, valuable books. Anyhow, welcome Dr. C. Thanks guys. It's a pleasure to be on. All right. From your accent, we can already tell you're from the West coast. So let's, (laughs) let's jump in here. Um, we're going to start with names and uh, the subtopics of what we're about to jump into with regard to naming of pharmaceutical products is A, chemical, B, generic, and C, trade. So take it away, Dr. C. Let's get into the name. 
Thanks. Uh, yeah, yeah. As, as you mentioned, there's there's three names usually when they develop these drugs uh, from a pharmaceutical company. Uh, usually, it, what it starts with this process where they develop a chemical of some sort, and um, they think, oh well, it's looking at this receptor or wherever that they're trying to get it to work at. So the first name is, is a chemical name that it's usually named by the IUPAC which is the International Union of Pure and Applied Chemistry, pretty straightforward naming convention that, that's used. For instance, I think a drug that everybody would know, N-acetylparaacetylaminophenol, which is what we would call acetaminophen here in America, but that is the trade name Tylenol. But it, it starts with that N-acetylparaacetylaminophenol, which is a chemical structure. And then they go through this lengthy process to come up with the generic and trade names and there's different rules involved with that. So if I followed you correctly, there's a chemical that's created. And of course the chemists have a name for that chemical. Then when it starts to become a product, there has to be a generic identifier. We would call it acetaminophen, the example you just used. And then somebody, I guess, has a patent. And so it gets its uh, marketable trade name, uh, which all the things everybody knows when a product is logoed, named, marketed, um, there's a patent on those things for a period of time. So that's what's going on here, right? Yeah, exactly. I can remember not too long ago when the opioid epidemic was in full swing um, and people had not quite recognized how full swing it was, that one of the trademarks was running out. And so immediately, and I looked into this, they changed the chemical slightly so that they could repatent. Yes, that's a very common uh, technique that drug companies use. And actually, there's something we can get into a little later called branded generics, which you know will delineate what generics, the difference between generics and trades and that kind of stuff a little more in detail. But yeah, there is, there is such a thing as branded generics where that's a big cash cow. Well, think about what we're saying. So supposedly this pill that they've made or whatever it is, is designed for your health, which is laughable. And so their patent runs out. So they tweak it in some way that has nothing to do with healing anybody uh, so that they can repatent and continue to milk that cash cow. Yes. I think it is patently obvious. It is all about money um, at this point, very little to do with health. No, you know, when we, when Jason and I were first doing a show where they pointed out, there's not a single pharmacy drug that ever cured every anything. I thought, how can that be? And I started looking into it. And the closest I got is you could say that an antibiotic, if someone's got an infection, is usually going to work. The side effects of that all, it didn't just kill what was giving you the infection, all that good, what's it called, flora in your body, all the beneficial Mm -hmm. things are generally getting whacked too. Um, But that's the closest I could come when I search for an example, but I am no expert. So let's get into the generic naming process, which I'm gathering from your notes picked up in the 1950s. Yeah. In the, uh, the 1950s, you had to realize too, you know, we just came out of World War II and there was a lot of, uh, at the time, classified technology that in the 50s became unclassified. And so these things were given to the public to kind of improve life. You had silicone products, microwave ovens, radars, computing devices and stuff that were starting. And then uh, the new medicines too, because the antibiotic era uh, happened in the previous decade. And so, well, they had this new wave of drugs that are now coming out. And also you had, you started seeing this process of globalization. The world's getting smaller. So now people are, you know, traveling more, they're going to different countries. And so, you know, you go to a, you know, say you go to a European country and you need this drug. Well, it 
maybe the same drug that you're looking for in America, but it's a different name and you don't know what you're taking. And so they tried to streamline this process. And, you know, as the world became globalized, so did the medical industry. Let me see if I understand where you're going. So using acetaminophen as, as the example, everybody knows the chemical, but by the time it became a product, they started to put the generic name on it. So if say Britain wanted to trade name it something different than America, um, that could be done, but everyone would still know what they're talking about. Exactly. And and one example too, and you know, when I was looking into this too, you see, I'm not as familiar with like European drugs and, and names and stuff, but uh, in the UK though, they do use paracetamol, which is the same thing as Tylenol here. So people are asking, it's like, why didn't America use paracetamol? Why didn't America use paracetamol? It's like, what we do is just acetaminophen. And so that's just what we call it. And according to the British naming convention, they call it paracetamol, which is actually kind of a derivative of the chemical name of the um, N-acetyl-para-acetyl-aminophenol. You can see where they get paracetamol out of that. All right. So as we move forward here, I'm just going to, I should tell people how this episode came to be. Uh, In the same way I asked for an alchemist and we got Fortune Germain, uh, which was very fortunate to make a pun. I did a call out not too long ago, uh, pointing out that it looks to me like spells and all kinds of nonsense are going on with these drugs from their color to their name to everything. I put out a call. Dr. C answered that call having experience. But Jason, do you want to jump in? Our next bullet point shows the magical four to five year process to get a drug approved and named. But I guess that magic went away in 2020. Before anything else, I'd like to ask, while they're waiting for the drug to get a name, if it's a four to five year process, do they do anything with it or do they just sit on it? No, they're sitting on it. Essentially, they come up with this compound and they're going through these clinical trials. And so essentially what they'll they'll start with a, a code name, which is the company that made this compound. And it's just essentially letters and numbers that they stick together, like, you know, RY3821 or whatever. Um, just so they can identify it in their database. And so they're actually doing clinical trials concurrently while the naming process is going on concurrently with it. It's never released before all the clinical trials and stuff are done. And the names, usually they wait till about phase two of clinical trials before they will even give it a generic name. Do we know anything about that process? Or when, when a clinical trial is going on and they've got this magical new chemical that they're getting ready to try to put into the mainstream cash cow system, um, I'm assuming probably animals get tested with it. But isn't there also something going on where they literally tell people, we'll pay you if you come take our drug? And I think most of those people don't know whether they're getting the drug or a placebo. Is that how it's done? Yeah, yeah. That Well, essentially, it starts with there's like four phases of a clinical trial. Uh, phase one, usually you have a very limited, small amount of people, usually healthy. They're just seeing, you know, hey, what's the side effects of this compound that we're giving people? And yeah, usually they're paid volunteers. It's usually very limited, dozens of people, and there, there's no placebo involved in phase one. That's just seeing like, hey, what does this stuff do? Phase two is it's a lot bigger in scope, usually larger doses, and they, they ramp it up to see how much can we give before side effects start. And then generally by, and then, and to see, you know, exactly what the medicine does and if it works for what they're intending it to work for. Still with living men and women. Yes. Yes. Always men and women, women, women. And then phase three, they will then ramp that up and then they'll start using against known standards in medicine. So if there is like, say they're testing a new beta blocker for, you know, blood pressure or something, well, they might compare it to metoprolol or placebo and then this new 
blood pressure medicine that they're coming out with. It's, it's a lot larger in scope. And then usually by phase three, if it passes all of that, then it gets approved by the FDA. The, the phase four trial is essentially now physicians start prescribing it and then a lot more people start taking it because it's been, quote unquote, proved generally safe. But the research is still going on to see now that they have a much wider scope and, and number of people to, to really see all these side effects come out. And that's why I just thought, <laughs> I've always thought the FDA was about useless because a drug will be out five years or so, and then they have to recall it or something because they found out some, oh no, this side effects. So it's like, what good is it doing in the first place? Dr. C, what side effects? That's just preposterous. Everything's safe and effective. Well, it, bring, it brings up a big point, guys, because I've long thought and I tried to look into it. And this was part of my shout out for someone who knows way more than I do about this drug thing is you've got to imagine that they're creating a drug and by the time they're getting approved and it's getting into the market, they're going to do a calculation to try to figure out how much do you think we'll make on this in five years before people start suing us? Well, we're going to make a billion dollars. And so we'll put aside a few million for the lawsuits. Do you you think that's part of this? Oh yeah, that's exactly, that's a big part of it. They try to outrun the uh, the lawsuits and try to make as much as they can, but not like robbers in that way or bandits. Well, what what kills me is you can watch any late night TV and there'll be all these come sue if you took Zeralta or this drug or that drug and all these terrible things happen to you. The drugs are still on the market as they're running the lawsuit, you know, many of them. Another one is that mesh thing that they're using all over hell and gone. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. They're not, you know, you would think, well, if the lawsuits have started, this drug has to go away, but that's not really the case, is it? No, it's not. No, they have a tendency to stick around. There's a few that they removed from the market. Biox was one when I was going through school because there's Celebrex, which is for arthritis, um, and Biox, which was very similar, except Biox got pulled because it was supposedly causing clots and that kind of stuff. And so, but it never came back. Um, I don't know how or why they can stick around, but some get gone when it seems like, you know, <laughs> it could, you know, it, it, it's, it's a mystery to me. Well, there's another thing that I noticed, and again, I don't know that much about it. I'm just trying to put it together logically. What's public facing is there'll be class action lawsuits. And I'm not sure, but if a class action lawsuits, isn't that like no double jeopardy? So there's a settlement, um, no one can sue them again kind of idea. And I know yes. you're not a, a law guy, but it sure feels like that's got to be going on. Yeah. And and sometimes they, I think the, the drug companies think, well, okay, if we can make it past this class action suit, well, then that's everybody. And so they can't bring it back. They always put a time limit and all these things. Go, go ahead. Belly up to the, to the drugstore, Jason. <laughs> well, first thing on my mind, I, uh, I'm not going to ask an hour one. Yeah, we better be careful. We're already poking the bear. Yeah. So uh, Dr. C, why don't you just take us to the next part, please? Okay. So essentially they, they come up with this chemical and now they have the, the company, the drug company will have a team that tries to come up with a generic name that has to be approved. It's it's a morass of bureaucratic red tape, this whole process is. Um, and generally, the generics are approved by uh, two organizations. There is, well, in America, there is the USAN, which is the United States Adopted Names Council, and that's just for us in America. And then the uh, World Health Organization, INN, which is the International Non-Proprietary Names. So they're the generic names are non-proprietary, which means that they're not trademarked. That that's this generic of this, this chemical. And then when the patent runs out, the generics can then be taken and made by other companies. And people used to think that who was just a sound an owl made. 
it's much worse than that now, unfortunately. <laughs> Makes you rethink <laughs> your favorite bands of the 60s. <laughs> yes, yes. And so the, the formula that the generics are based around essentially is the main part is the suffix or the family name of the generic. And that's when, uh, yeah, the, when you were talking to Clive DeCarl and you asked him, you said, well, what is this stuff with MAB? What does MAB mean? And I was like, oh, I know that. <laughs> and so, so essentially the suffix or the family name shows how the medicine works. And, you know, as physicians, it allows us to, you, we can look at a generic and then look at the suffix and say, oh, okay, that's going to be a loop diuretic. That's going to be a beta-lactam antibiotic. That's going to be a beta blocker, you know. So we know what system it's going to work at and what specifically um, it's going to do. And to answer your question then, MAB, the MAB, is a monoclonal antibody. And so usually you'll see those with autoimmune disorders and, and things like that or certain cancers treatments. They, they'll use the antibodies. Okay. So there's a couple things going on that I want to comment. First of all, that's not far off the making of a sigil. For people know how sigils are made, and you can go ahead and look up sigils. Just be careful. You can't unsee things. And some people out there on the web are not being real helpful. If you just want to know what a sigil is, it's basically a magical symbol that has all these magical effects on your mind, among other things. And so uh, we're talking about a suffix. So for people who missed grade school, that's the last part of the word. And they're taking MAB, which is the one that I actually started that started this whole thing we're talking about. I thought, oh, look, they're doing bippity boppity boo. They're casting spells here. So what he just told you is that the M stands for something, the A and the B, which gives us MAB. Now, if that was a sigil on paper, they would take the entire word, they would pull out the vowels usually, and they'd make this logo looking thing with the intention of what they're making the sigil for embedded into it. I kid you not. So with what Dr. Steele just told us, you could imagine that it's an audio sigil. How's that for one? Like, like an audio logo doing the exact same things. But what got me started is I'm on the, the, these seem like spell names, like, you know, like literally bippity boppity boo, you know how they're all supposed to run this. I started looking at all the, the suffixes and I realized none of them are used in our, in the way we speak, but anyhow, go, go ahead, Dr. C. Yeah. So, um, in this, uh, naming convention too. So the suffix is just one part of it. Uh, they also try to look for syllables that are different from other existing generics to try to prevent any confusion. So usually what they'll do is they'll try to look for a pleasant tonality or appearance. And that goes to what you were talking about with the sounds of these things. And so they'll uh, usually they'll use two. There has to be at least two syllables that are distinct from other drugs, too, and try to avoid certain letters, especially in, in the prefix, because this stuff's going worldwide. And so not all languages will use the same letters. So they don't use. Y, H, K, J, and W. Y, H, K, and W. I guess we know why we say and sometimes Y. One more time. Y, H, K, and W. Oh, J's in there. Yeah, and that's usually in the prefix or the first part of the name. If you write it out, it almost looks like it says Yahweh. Yahweh got left out of this. Also, it can't be considered marketing. So you can't use your, your company name. So you can't use like Pfizer or Lol or something. And you can't use superlatives like the new, the best, the grandest, that kind of stuff. Because then that would be like a marketing thing for them. So there are certain rules that they do have to follow. They also need to avoid uh, medical terminology. 
as far as it, it just in the generic, well, actually in the trade too, but um, because the medicine itself could be reductive, which means that they may, it may start for one thing, but then they find another use for it. For example, sildenafil or Viagra, which I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with. You see it plastered all over the place. Started actually in research as a blood pressure medicine, but then they found out that there was another side effect that could actually be more profitable. Because whenever I think you get to people's uh, baser desires like that, that's a lot more money involved. Monetizing the boner. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that was. Uh, it was really hard for them to uh, pass that up. Oh, and I bet you they made a killing too. Yeah. Still making a killing. We'll always make a killing. Um, I don't want to get blow by tonality and appearance, but this whole, the reason for this show started, I don't know, 15 years ago or more. Uh, I, I was watching Bill Maher way back in the day and he made the comment that, you know, why are people taking all these drugs and it's not healthy? And then he made the joke um, because if you get an X or a Y in the name, you know, that's potent medicine. That's literally what started this all those years ago. He said that, and I started thinking, wow, uh, here's a whole thing that I've never really thought about. And so is there a syllable limit? No, because there are some that are, they try not to make it too complicated because they they do try to make it uh, user-friendly for non-medical people too, because that does kind of tie in a little bit to the marketing, even on the generic side. But it has to be at least two syllables just to prevent confusion. It's just so interesting because the sigil idea, if there is, you know, and I, I know there is, I just don't know what it's called, an audio sigil idea uh, in, in a written one, like a logo on paper where you're embedding your intention, the syllables are usually pulled, at least as far as I know, which is not very far because I got tired of looking at it. Um, but in an audio sigil or whatever it's properly called, you would have to imagine those syllables are critically important. Otherwise, you'd have... You know, yeah, you, wouldn't, exactly. you wouldn't have any punch, but um, yeah. you want to go back to tonality and appearance because this one is so critically important. And one of the examples you gave in your notes was just so spot on with Trintilex, but let's do tonality or appearance. Yeah. So they, um, of the generics, they do try to, um, and, and really the tonality and appearance probably comes more into the trade name that they really focus on this because this is going to be their brand that they're going to be marketing. And so they want to make sure it's either a pleasant sound or sounds something with a lot of vigor. Although, uh, for instance, we'll go back to the um, Viagra example, because there's, there's other ones. And that just uh, is just a testament to the amount of marketing that goes into it. Because, you know, if somebody says, hey, I need something for erectile dysfunction, and the first thing I'll think of is Viagra. But there's actually others. There's Cialis and Levitra and Stendra. But um, Cialis, for instance, is Tadalafil. And I always think of like, ta-da, you know. <laughs> Kind of thing. Sky Rizzy. Mm-hmm. That was a recent one that was on TV. They always show the sky yeah, the whole time. They're talking about Sky Rizzy. Yeah. Not very subtle. No, no, not very much at all. So, I mean, as far as the generics, the tonality, I think they're just trying to make it, you know, simple enough to be understood. But it's it's really when they try to start marketing it under a trade name, that's their brand, that they really pull out all the stops for that. Well, I'll, I'll make a bold assertion here, and that's all it is. It's an educated, logical put together. Maybe someone out there listening knows the truth and could make contact and say, hey, I know about that. Started the last two episodes we've recorded. The tonality has color. 
um, well, I mean, the color has a tonality. In other words, there's tones. So we're shifting a little bit off the sound. But I've always long thought, knowing what I do of alchemy, that any alchemist worth his salt back in the day would say, hey, man, that's blue. It's negative in polarity, female in connotation or gender. It goes on and on and on what could be derived. And then there's, is that a dark blue? Was black put in to get the blue darker? Or was it white, purity, put in to get it more pale? And I've always thought, that the colors, which I'm just sticking in here, um, have been put together cleverly. They must be. Yeah. And I, I don't see it in the notes or did I jump the gun here? No, that's fine. Well, cause I, I think what you're getting at too is the, um, cause there's more than just one aspect of it. It's you have the names, which can, you know, kind of be a spell in itself, but you also do have the color of the pills and the imprints on the, on the physical pills and the packaging and that kind of stuff too. Geometry, you know, triangle versus round versus square versus whatever. Yeah. And that's essentially what I was getting at uh, when I was talking about Trintelix, which is a, Vortioxetine is the generic name, but it's like you mentioned, it's like, well, what do you think of when you say Trin? Trintelix is like a triangle. Which and, is. Uh, Zarelto, you know, which we were mentioning earlier, is the um, on the the pill itself, and all the pills that I have found, and yeah, that's why I have patients ask me sometimes to be like, well, what what color is it? Is it the blue one, or is it? I was like, I don't know what color they are because when we learn them in class, we don't necessarily see what they look like. We just we know the names, we know what they do, the dosages, and that kind of stuff, and everything else about it, but we never really see the end product of what we're given. So when you look at, especially the uh, the twenty milligram. Pill. Oh, that's why I was, I was going to get into the Zarelto one because it, it looks either like a Triscale or like the old Klingon symbol, the, the 20 milligram one. And it has a triangle upside down on it. On one side, it has XA and then the other side has 20. The other pills, the, the smaller doses, the 10 and the 5 are round, but they still have that upside down triangle and then like the 10 or the 5, whatever milligram it is. So what does that upside down try? So it's pretty clear when you see the 20, that's probably how many milligrams with most drugs. Yeah. And the XA is pretty clearly referring to the name, the patented name Zeralto. But what's that upside down triangle about? Well, it seems like it's in a female polarity from our previous discussion. There it is. I mean, so, so here is, uh, I mean, if someone out there knows better and they can tell you exactly could could tell us exactly why that upside down triangle but where i'm going is that's a nod to alchemy the geometry is all important and the reason it's all important is because the way the creation gets created a square has a certain ness about it a triangle certain ness now as we known from so much of the work we've done in most applications the point down triangle would probably be negative in polarity female and gender, and there's all these other things we could go at. Um, and that doesn't even start to touch the actual geometry. But so, so Dr. C, you're feeling like that's a nod to alchemy too? Because it oh, doesn't yeah. seem to have a meaning? Yeah, because I really don't know why they would have a triangle on it. There may be some exoteric reason why they did that, but I can't fathom what it is, which is at least based on what I know of it maybe you would have to actually speak with someone on a big pharma marketing team that maybe. spends gazillions of dollars naming. Uh, it, it just would be interesting to know who actually decided that this pill is going to be blue. 
Now we know that the ZA is to the trade name. We know that the 20 is to the milligrams, but there's other things on these pills. How do they get there? Who picks the shape? Um, I think these would be interesting things to know factually. Yeah. Um, as far as that, I'm not as well uh, versed uh, when it comes to that aspect of it. All right. I'm, I'm guessing nobody that isn't in the know does that for a living. All right. Where did we drop? Oh, so usually, so what they'll do is they'll whittle down, they'll, they'll come up with a, a list of names of hundreds of generic names that they would send for approval following these rules. And they will select about three to six names, and then they will submit it to the uh, United States Adopted Name Council, which has a representative of the American Medical Association, the United States Pharmacopoeia, the American Pharmacists Association, and there's a Food and Drug Administration liaison, and then one member at large, which I think is just some member of the community. Probably some drug representative, though. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised how the, uh, the FDA is usually a revolving door, and I wouldn't be surprised if it was some former FDA man on there. Well, look, look what happened to us in 2020. Yeah, exactly. Politicians and the business people in these pharmaceutical companies, they just go back and forth with their positions, right? Oh, no. Yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah, it's not uncommon to have head of the FDA will then step down, go to be a president of a drug company and then vice versa. Yeah. It's, it's, there's, they weren't kidding when they said it's a revolving door. That's very true. Or head of the CDC or who knows what. Insider baseball. Yep. Insider baseball. It's a big club and you're not in it as George Carlin used to say. (laughs) So I'm just going to sum up the ideas of the generic named base around a formula. First, the suffix, we covered it and showed how it works. Look for the suffixes and look at that last part of the word that's different from other generics because it's telling you things. The tonality or appearance is wholly about look and feel of the marketing that goes behind it. The idea that it has to be minimally two syllables. Um, You can't do certain things like say best, all these other things, and you're avoiding medical terminology, which is a bit ironic. (laughs) I think before I had to break the chain there and, and take a moment out, Uh, We were talking about the three to six names that get selected by the company and submitted to the USAN. Yeah. And so the the USAN USAN will uh, review the names selected and sometimes the name will go through. They say like, yeah, okay, this one's fine. Sometimes it gets rejected and then the the USAN will then counterpropose another. uh, They'll send it back to the company and say, here, we don't like what you sent us. What do you think about this name? And they'll send one. And so the company will then either accept it or try to come up with another one. And so until it, they can find one that everybody agrees on. You got to imagine there's an algorithm doing that, right? Comparing the ones oh, they've yeah. got and saying, oh, you were close, but how about this? And AI did it. Yeah, exactly. And so that goes to show too, that as far as um, some of this stuff, as far as any alchemical significance, I mean, some of it could be coming from this USAN or the World Health Organization, INN people who are coming up with this stuff as well because maybe it don't have the exact ring that they want to bring out to the public. And so it could be coming from there as well. But when, when it's finally accepted, then the, the USAN will then submit on behalf of the drug company to the World Health Organization, the international uh, non-proprietary names of the World Health Organization. And then it's reviewed by a committee who will then either accept the name that was proposed or they will counter-propose one if they don't like it and then send it back through this whole process again. And so it's just kind of like a pretty boilerplate thing then. So if it's accepted by the World Health Organization, 
it will be published on what's called a proposed international non-proprietary names list. Um, it gets published out for the public. It's up for like four months and the public can look at the name of, of what's proposed and then they can either accept it or reject it. So you have, you know, scientists and physicians and pharmacists and everybody looking at it and saying like, Oh, you know, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't like that. Clever getting their buy-in to what they're doing. Reg- not with, with no eye of concern on what it actually does. No, not really. I mean, if anything, maybe by the stem, by the, the family name of it, they could say, like, oh, well, they're coming out with a, you know, a new uh, GLP-1 inhibitor or agonist or a DDP-4 inhibitor or something. So they'll be like, oh, okay, well, you know, okay, that's acceptable or not. But if nobody objects, if there's no objections or anything to hash out, then it will be published on what's called the recommended international non-proprietary names list. So that means that it's been accepted. It's gone through this big tedious process and everybody's on board with it. And then now you can refer to this compound by the non-proprietary name rather than the code name. So while we're going back to the beginning where we're talking about where they're going through these trials, usually, you know, these, these are going on concurrently. So they, they put this compound up, but they're only referring to it by its code name that the company gave it. So, you know, RY4286, whatever it is. But then once it's named and put onto the recommended international name list, then they take that code name and they'll say, oh, now we can refer to it as Rivaroxaban or, or, you know, whatever the generic is of it, Cinegliptin. Well, now we're going to call it that. And that's, is that when patenting starts, when that's happened? Or does patenting start at the chemical name? Uh, well, the patent will start at the chemical name, I believe. They'll patent it, but the, the name of it they cannot, uh, you know, officially refer to it. They may have one they like, but until it's officially approved, they can't refer to it publicly as that until it goes through this whole rigmarole. I don't know if you'll know this or not, but how often are new drugs based off of older drugs or at least ideas that are already understood and uh, maybe even patented by that company? Oh, it happens. It happens quite a bit. A lot of times, what they'll do is they may change the chemical structure slightly, or add something to it. So, for instance, one—I mean, this thing's been out forever called metformin, which a lot of people have heard of, or glucophage. It's to treat diabetes. I think it's yeah. So, so metformin's been out forever. I mean, I, I don't know when it exactly came out, but I know it was like early, early 1900s. I think when it came about. Well, then what they've done is they'll take it and add some compound to make it last longer in the body. And now it's extended release. So now they can call it glucophage ER and they market the hell out of it and try to get uh, more, a lot more money out of it because it's extended release. Now you only have to take it once a day instead of twice a day. They'll also, what they'll do is they'll actually compound medicines together. Sometimes and what, what they'll do is they'll take two older medicines or the, so they'll take one that's been out for a long time and they'll put it together with another one. which may be relatively new or one that's been out for a while. And then they'll put it together and charge a lot of money for it. For instance, there's one called Contrave, which is a, it's marketed for weight loss, but it's actually a mix of uh, bupropion and naltrexone. Uh, Bupropion is a uh, antidepressant and naltrexone is actually used for um, opioid overdoses, but they suppose that the way it works they don't know exactly how it works, but it seems like when people take naltrexone, they don't eat as much. And then the same thing with Wobutrin. And a lot of times they don't even really know exactly how a lot of these medicines supposedly work. 
they're just kind of guessing a lot. And especially with the SSRIs and things like they, from what I understand, and I've looked in this a long time ago, but they only theorize that it's serotonin. I don't think there's any solid evidence that it's actually serotonin that does this, but it was been a theory in psychiatry for a long time. Um, and so they could just kind of ran with it. So they come up with these SSRIs, which are for depression. And they're thinking they, the theory was, oh, they're low on serotonin. They give them this medicine. They feel a little better. Oh, well, it must have blocked the serotonin. But back, back to the point. So they'll, they'll take two older medicines, uh, slap them together and then market it and charge, oh, so much money for it. A $5 pill may now become $100 a pill or something like that, just by combining two together. So there's another thing that kind of fits in where we are now. Uh, there was a time when I think most people openly thought most of the pharmaceutical drugs or compounds that were made are derived from ideas in nature. Like you'd always hear, oh, the, the pharmacy companies are down in the rainforest. And, you know, the first thing is, is, well, if you found a plant that's been used for medicine since the beginning of time, why wouldn't you just take the plant and grow it, right? Why do you always have to synthesize some version of nature? But if I'm not mistaken, the majority of these compounds are derived from plant ideas. I mean, occasionally you hear there's a thing pulled from a squid, but isn't most of this based on spagyrics? Yeah. Yeah. A large part of it is. And that's one thing I'd found. It was, um, I'd heard a long time ago, and I don't know how true this is, but like 70% used to be 70% of the medicines were actually plant derived. Yeah. And now I'm thinking it's down to like 40 or 50%, I believe I, I saw recently. Um, I don't know the, the veracity of all that, but one thing I do know is like, and I've even heard Clive the Carl talk about it is that you can't really patent nature, <laughs> which they actually are doing now, by the way, yeah. just so you know, you can't, but they're still doing it. Yeah, they're still doing it, but they have found that it's probably a lot more marketable instead of a lot less resources into chemically synthesizing a compound instead of actually taking a plant, breaking it down. It's a lot less work and a lot more money they can make if they did that. In my opinion. Yeah, I just I think it speaks to intent. If you know, there's old alchemical ideas that there was a plant or a mineral for every single ailment in this world. And this is put forward by a lot of different people over a lot of different centuries. And so it's funny that we think of alchemy or spagyrics as not as legit of science when the fact is, and this is a fact, the entirety of chemistry stands on the shoulders of spagyria or the alchemy of the plant kingdom. That's true. Well, yeah. and, and because I've been listening to the show too, I started, I actually bought the book Spagyrics by uh, Manfred Junius. And such um, a great book. This is wonderful. And it really breaks down a lot of these alchemical ideas. And, you know, I, I um, what I've noticed for reading it too, is essentially chemistry and alchemy are very similar, except the chemistry is the spiritual absence. The chemistry doesn't have the spirituality like alchemy does, but essentially there's still a lot of measures, a lot of weighing and distilling and all that stuff. You do the same thing in chemistry, except in the alchemy, you're trying to purify yourself as well as your work. And it's kind of a concurrent process. It seems a lot more helpful. Well said. The great thing about Manfred Junius's book called Spagyrics is that the man is a chemist. So as an alchemist, he goes into the spagyrics, just so people know, spagyrics is the alchemy of the plant kingdom. Or what Phoenix Aurelius does. Um, and by the way, there's links to Phoenix Aurelius because I have found nowhere better at making just top quality spagyric products. So I finally did put a link up to his things. And there are so few people doing it. The point I'm making here 
is in that book, a man who's a chemist and an alchemist shows this is provably how spagyric works. And it's not arguable. Thing about alchemy is you do or you don't. There's no almost, right? You either achieve this process of nature or you do not. And so in the plant kingdom, they're making all these remedies and other things. But what he does is he goes in and says, okay, in alchemy or spagyrics, we'll talk about spirit. We'll talk about this body, um, soul. And he literally crosses it over where it says this thing we're looking at here in Spigeria, that represents carbon or, you know, methyl alcohol. And so he draws the line across. And by the time you get through that book, it is no mystery that these are provable things. If you have achieved what you set out to do, then you have proved that function of nature. It is no longer arguable. And Dr. C, what you said is so true. It is. It's without nature. What they've done is they're trying to do cheap knockoffs uh, that will never rise to the level as if they had done it with spirituality, which is basically nature. Yeah, it is. It does seem to be a, a pale imitation of how we do things, but also even the thought, because when I've read into it too, I've noticed this might be more hour two thing, but the outcomes that the alchemists look for, they were just saying like, hey, does this work? They didn't care how it worked. They just wanted to make sure that it worked. Uh, not so with, with modern science. They're all tied down in this minutia of, well, it'll activate this and then this and this. And then so if this certain thing doesn't happen, well, then if you can't prove it, well, it doesn't exist kind of thing, which is kind of ironic given the things with viruses and stuff, which I can get into that later. But <laughs> Well, you're bringing up a key point. We could just use color as the example. What if some clever chemist somewhere comes up with a color that has never occurred in nature? think about it. So the possibility in nature had to exist, but as nature processes up to this point of, I'll just call it evolution, nature has never created this color. And so you could say the same thing of chemical compounds. And when in fact, you could almost look at spagyrics, and I don't want to use the word chemistry, but what it is, is chemistry that never exceeds what nature will provide and only uses the rules that nature uses in the creation. You could look at it that way. By the time you get up to chemistry, everything I just said is out the window. By hook or crook, whatever you can get away with is what we're doing. Yep. I agree with that wholeheartedly. So let's, well, we've got about 10 or 15 minutes left. Let's talk about the trade name. Back at the beginning, we pointed out there are three names, a chemical name, you know, like a typical chemical formula name. Then there's the generic name, And the example we used was acetaminophen, which then gets a patented and owned trade name, which in the example of acetaminophen is Tylenol. So here we are down to this bullet point where it's the trade name, which would be equivalent to the owned and operated and patented name Tylenol. Yes. And this this is owned by the drug company. The name is. And that's why all their marketing push and all the everything you can imagine a lot more thought, I think, probably, I would imagine, goes more into the trade name because this is going to be their brand going forward. For instance, going back to the Viagra example, you know, Viagra will always be Viagra. And so when people think of what would be the first thing they think of, because you know, see on the on the commercials and stuff, and they'll say, you know, ask your doctor about this. So they are marketing to the consumer, not just us. You know, there'll be drug, drug reps that come around that, you know, try to explain it and tell why their drug's better than their competitors and that kind of stuff. And so They have all these things that they target for physicians, especially, but also to the public because they want you to ask your physician about this medicine. 
And so they want it to be memorable and they want it to, to kind of stick in your head. So you will ask about it and say like, Hey, I'm having this problem. Do you think this medicine will do good for that? And then, you know, oh, that, that's perfect. Just remove the doctor, right? The marketing's so good yeah, that they, the patient goes in to speak to the medical expert and says, by the way, can we use this? Yeah, that's true. Well, and that was one point too. I was going to say too is, and I know from experience that, you know, physicians for the most part are not known for their critical thinking. Uh, there's kind of this perception that, you know, oh, well, you know, physicians are, you know, really smart. Well, there's a lot of memorization that goes into it, but essentially I, we're just kind of glorified computers of, well, we have X symptoms, so we need Y drug. And that's kind of the way our training has been. And also I always tell people too, especially now with the insurance companies and everything dictating everything, I'll tell patients all the time. So we're just glorified clerks is what we are. I'm, I have to document everything about this stuff in some computer and really, we're just documenting this and I just happen to know, well, okay, you might need this thing to help this condition. Memorization and regurgitation, basically. So the idea of practicing medicine isn't really that prevalent anymore, is it? It isn't. And I remember one thing when I first started, well, before I went to medical school, there was a physician told me, he, he was a little more old school minded. And he said, he said, medicine isn't a science. And he said, medicine isn't a business. He said, it is an art. And he said, now it'll utilize some science and it'll utilize some business. But he said, it's neither one of those. It is an art. So to have it as like an end all be all, because sometimes you'll make decisions based on kind of gut feelings that maybe the, the science doesn't agree with. And, and I think I'm of the opinion, if you practice medicine long enough, you'll start seeing some of this and start questioning. That's what happened to me. About three years or so ago, you know, you start seeing some things that make you start questioning. Um, like I had a patient one time, she had a, um, a blockage in the left anterior descending artery. And she came into the office and saying, oh, I'm having chest pain. And I was like, well, okay, we need to send you to a cardiologist. You need another heart cath because you've already got a little blockage there and they didn't stand it before. So I was like, well, may, may have gotten bigger. Who knows? So she went, saw the cardiologist, got the heart cath. And she came back and she was like, there's no blockage there now. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and she was like, no, they, they did. They compared it to the old one. It was about three years apart. It was completely gone. And I said, oh, okay. So then I started asking questions like, okay, are you on any statin medicines? Which statins are for the cholesterol and they're kind of the accepted medical model of if you have plaques and blockages, it's because of cholesterol. So we need, we've had a 30 year war on cholesterol and I think it's been to our disadvantage. Uh, and I think they had it completely wrong. But um, she was like, no, I haven't taken any. I can't stand them. They cause my legs to ache. I can't take. So she wasn't taking anything for cholesterol. I was like, well, did you change your diet? And she was like, no, I didn't change my diet. I said, you started exercising. She's like, no, I didn't start exercising. She didn't change anything in the past three years. And yet that blockage was gone. And I, I couldn't explain it. There may be some explanation for it. But I was like, I was like, wow, it just blew my mind. There was no uh, medical or lifestyle changes that caused that to happen. I think sometimes the body, you know, I think the body can take care of itself and that we don't have faith in that anymore. Well, we're told the opposite. Um, what was the example? Was it Amanda Vollmer uh, when we were talking about a man who grew the tip of his finger back and everyone's all no way. And it yes. turns out there's lots of examples. Yeah. Which, um, well, that and, and um, I've started using the tuning uh, fork. Right. From Eileen uh, McCusick. I actually got one. And you know, I started using it and I was telling my wife about these things and she didn't believe me at first. I was like, oh my gosh, I was, I was amazed by the results and I've been using it for like a year now. And, 
yeah, it just, it, I just feel so much better, sleep better, everything. And all it is is attending for is vibrating. All it is is hacking the actual root of creation that everything vibrates, <laughs> right? If you want to think about it correctly, uh, you're going right to the foundation of all form. Yep, exactly. It was like uh, that quote from Tesla. If you want to understand the secrets of the universe, think in terms of energy, frequency, and vibration. Yep. If, if Tesla was real. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the, the frequency and vibration, I mean, that's that ties back into alchemy as well. And uh, Walter Russell, which I've, I've started reading the Universal One as well. So I'm kind of on the edges of this stuff. I'm, I'm trying to learn more about it. I'm, I'm not expert in a lot of it enough that I can understand it when people talk about it, but I'm trying to learn as much as I can of this. This seems a lot more interesting than <laughs> medicine. <laughs> well, truth be told, I think we're kind of in the diaper changing era where adults get out of diapers again. <laughs> um, that's kind of how yeah, it feels. We're all in the state we're, you know, we're all doing the best we can, but let's just point out that in China right now, there are doctors that are using natural things from nature. That's the whole of how they treat people. And get this, their payment is tied to whether or not they cure or if someone gets sick. If they show up and they try to help and the person isn't cured or gets sick, they do not get paid. Think of how closely rooted that is to things that Fortune has said to us. What was he said? Uh, the gift to all mankind or what you should expect from your life is joy, abundance, and success. Think of Ben Balderson coming in and pointing out this evil character in the mythology that was a curse that showed up the first time some amount of gold was valued above a human life. This is the root of what we were separated from when the idea of pharmacos became supposed medicine. And what it actually is, is, you know, it's a good thing. The word medicine, it's got sin in it. It's probably related to Medici. I was looking into that too. But the point I would make is the sin is a sin literally means to be without. So medicine is without nature, without regard to life. Dr. C, is there anything you want to get into the end of hour one? And by the way, are you flying under radar or do you want to give any contact? It's maybe not the best idea considering we're using a pseudonym. Yeah, I don't have a contact publicly, but I would like to say I would highly recommend everybody to join Crow Triple Seven Radio. It is it's been one it's been a wealth of information for me to think about things much differently, and I'm, I'm really grateful for it. So I'd recommend everybody to join it. Get the full two hours because sometimes an hour two, man, it's it's some stuff that it, it's phenomenal. I think this will be one of those episodes. I hope so. <laughs> Maybe we could trade name and, and get a generic and a, and a brand name. We could call it Common Sensicus Availabus. <laughs> yeah. um, all right, everybody. That was hour one of episode 353, covering pharmaceutical drugs and all these things that everyone wanted to know but was afraid to ask. So we took the time to ask. Um, Dr. C will join us on the other side with Jason Lingren. Join us at crow777radio.com for the full episode. That is provided for members, C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com. And lastly, I would truly like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. There it is, man. Cheers.
enemies of knowing. <laughs>